Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Friday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, we go behind the story, behind a new podcast from NPR Music. It reveals the rise of hip-hop and mass incarceration. It's called Louder Than a Riot. When we talk about these things they're not just sound bites like for the culture is not just a buzzword you know like we're, we're trying to regard and uphold the culture in its fullest form and give it its due and tell these stories with nuance and dignity in a way that I think a lot of people have already told us has never been done before. That conversation coming up in just a moment but first this Democratic vice presidential candidate Senator Kamala Harris will be in Atlanta today. Harris will participate in a virtual fundraising event this afternoon, then head to a get out the vote event this evening. This is Senator Harris's first visit to Georgia since joining the Democratic ticket with former vice president Joe Biden. And Donald Trump Jr. will be in Georgia today, stumping for the Republican presidential ticket. He'll headline events in Atlanta and Macon. In related news, the Georgia Secretary of State's office reveals more than 2.3 million people have voted. That turnout is an increase of 121 percent over the 2016 general election. All Georgia counties will be open for in-person voting this Saturday. Some counties will open Sunday, too. And, of course, all this can be contributed to Georgians taking advantage of early voting to possibly avoid those long lines and large groups due to the coronavirus pandemic. And so the latest data from the State Department of Public Health indicates newly confirmed COVID-19 cases are actually up 15 percent in the last two weeks. At the time of this broadcast, 345,535 COVID-19 cases have been confirmed here in Georgia. And the active coronavirus-related hospitalizations are also slowly climbing. In total, 30,829 have been hospitalized, and of those, 5,774 were ICU admissions. And 7,729 deaths have been recorded since March. Now, other states are seeing a spike in cases and hospitalizations as well, the Midwest and Rocky Mountains. And the U.S. continues to have the highest rate of new cases in the world. All this information comes from Johns Hopkins University. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. Atlanta's Choice for NPR, I'm Rose Scott. We are two weeks away from the general election. And we're about two weeks away from Halloween. Now, due to the global health crisis, the usual events that occur leading up to both, well, simply didn't happen this year or they had to be modified. Now, campaign spending increased, but for many households, extra money for Halloween may be a little tight to spend on items like candy, decorations, and costumes. Or will there be a drastic dip in Halloween spending this year? Well, let's ask Catherine Cullen, the National Retail Federation's Senior Director of industry and consumer insights. So, Catherine, let's get the big question out the way first. What is your favorite Halloween candy? I'm a Butterfingers girl. It's my <laughs> favorite candy, regardless of the time of year. But Halloween is the excuse I need to indulge a little bit more. And uh, in your part of the country, are you all expecting little trick-or-treaters this year? Or what's that like? We are not expecting trick-or-treaters in in our neighborhood, but the parents are banding together and doing some Halloween scavenger hunts and other socially distant activities for the kids. And I think we're going to see a lot of that across the country, different ways to celebrate this year. Can you think of a time in your experience in this industry, whether with the National Retail Federation or other areas, where a national event was going to 
potentially impact Halloween in terms of what households are spending? Nothing comes to mind. This is an unprecedented year in a lot of ways. Different parts of the country at different points will experience you know, weather. Right now, we know there's wildfires and hurricanes. But as we know, the coronavirus has impacted most communities um, across the country, and most people are, are feeling some of the constraints this year. And that's definitely coming across in our data. We are seeing you know, people a little more cautious about celebrating this year. About 58% of American consumers say they plan to celebrate Halloween, which is high, but it is a little less than we've seen in years past. And we'll get to that Halloween spending survey in just a moment. Let's go back to the good old days last year when I believe Halloween spending totaled up to about $8.8 billion. Is that correct? That is correct. It was you know, a great year for Halloween in terms of consumer expectations. And we've really seen this holiday grow in popularity and the spending grow year over year. It's become something that's not just for kids, but historically in the past few years is for a lot of adults too. People are really embracing the fun elements and the spooky elements of the holiday, regardless of their age. An 8.8 billion, that is, that's extraordinary to think that (laughs) that's what we're spending on Halloween. That's a a lot of candy. But when you break it down, you know, per person, Mm -hmm. it's about $86 per person. And that includes candy, like I mentioned, costumes, as well as things like gift cards and decorations. So all the elements of celebrating that people might be participating in, whether it's you know, stocking up for a party, creating your own haunted house, um, or passing out candy to to kids in the neighborhood. So it's all of those elements come together uh, to about $86 per person last year, but it's actually up a little this year. Well, and because of the pandemic, when you all typically do these spending surveys, did you adjust maybe the time period that you were going to actually conduct this survey? Or did you just keep things as normal as possible to get a more accurate measurement of what folks were going to spend? We kept things as close to last year as possible, to your point, to have a real comparison. Now, we did ask some new questions about, you know, whether people were doing things differently this year. We asked a little bit more about how concerned they were about the pandemic. So we have a you know bigger picture of what's going on with the consumer. But one of the benefits of tracking the similar things year over year is, for example, we can really see this year what changed. So for example, this year, we really saw an increase um, in spending on decorations and an interest in decorations. Um, again, makes sense given the pandemic that decorations are a way to get into the spirit of the Halloween in a very safe way, create something fun for your kids that they can really be part of or can entertain the neighborhood in a sense. People, Some people go all out on this holiday, mm-hmm. as you probably know, and decor is a way to do that. Also, greeting cards. We saw more consumers planning to send greeting cards for Halloween and spending more on those greeting cards. So again, speaks to some of the differences this year where people may not be able to celebrate in person, but they want their loved ones, the people around them to know they're thinking of them. And a card is a is a great way to do that. So um, that apples to apples comparison lets us see some of those shifts that the pandemic has has had on consumer behavior. And how many consumers did you all reach out to for the survey? Uh, So we survey uh, over 7000 consumers um, for this survey. And as I mentioned, about 58% of those say they plan to celebrate Halloween this year. Um, And that gives us a good representation of the country, of different age groups, and uh, really lets us get the pulse on how people are feeling about this holiday. Well, before we get to the big question, if just in case you're joining us, I'm speaking with Catherine Cullen. She's a Senior Director of Industry and Consumer Insights for the National Retail Federation. We're talking about Halloween consumer spending. All right, here we go. Catherine, let's uh, drum roll, please. What is the projected national spending this year on Halloween? So this year, based on what consumers are telling us, we are expecting spending on Halloween to uh, reach um, a little over $8 billion this year. Um, That's slightly down from last year, but is still, you know, a strong trend uh, given uh, 
the last few years of Halloween, it, it's still showing significant spending around the holiday. And when we look at a per person basis, um, the people who are planning on celebrating the holiday this year plan to spend about $92 on average. So, um, you know, up a little bit from last year when we look at what the average consumer is going to spend, but the total number is down because we're just having fewer people celebrate. So even with this global health crisis, with the pandemic, and also with the way the economy has gone up and down, and, and obviously with so many folks who have been out of work, it's been pretty stable. Was that surprising to you all when you got these results back? You know, it, it wasn't really, because what we've seen throughout the pandemic is that almost because of the extra uncertainty consumers are feeling, and all the shifts that they have experienced in their lives and, and new restrictions, that special events and occasions are almost more important to them mm. this year. Mm. Um, we saw this for Mother's Day, Father's Day, and, and Halloween, where you know families have gone through a lot. They might be living and working from home uh, and teaching their kids all at the same time. And where they can, they want to make things feel as normal as possible or as special as possible. And, you know, make Halloween feel a little different from the other days of the week that could kind of blur together. Um, so we weren't surprised by the by the numbers and we, we thought it was encouraging. Now, as you mentioned, there are consumers feeling, uh, you know, financial pressures right now. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's important to take that number as an average. Um, there are certainly consumers who may be looking for more cost-effective ways to celebrate this year, um, but it speaks to the fact that the holiday and the event is is really important, and um, that motivation behind celebrating is something we've seen pretty consistently, and uh, we're also seeing kind of going into the winter holidays as we as we head towards Thanksgiving and the other major events of the year. That's my next question, because Given what we are hearing about Halloween and the projected spending, is, does it give you a little bit of hope going into Thanksgiving and, and obviously the big holiday shopping season, or is it just too early to tell? It does give us hope. You know, everything we're, we're hearing from retailers and from consumers is that celebrating these events is important. And again, where they're able to, um, where they can, they want to make these experiences and, and these events feel special. And oftentimes, you know, families might be facing scenarios where they can't uh, visit family members mm -hmm. or don't feel comfortable visiting family members over the holidays. And so they might be looking, you know, to take some of that travel money and spend it on, on a little bit more in gifts or a little bit more on, uh, you know, food for the holidays and things like that. So um, we, we are encouraged when we look at this trend and when we look forward to the winter holidays. But if 2020's taught us anything, there's a lot of uncertainty and things can change really quickly. Um, so we are very cognizant of that fact. But um, you know, we do notice consumers and retailers are really getting out there uh, with the holiday season, mm -hmm. uh, making sure people have time to shop and time to spread out their budget. Um, so even as you're thinking about Halloween, consumers um, are probably also starting to think about the winter holidays too. I'm curious in the survey, did you all ask or did people indicate whether or not they were shopping online for Halloween or were they actually going into stores? Did you all ask that question? Um, we did ask where people are shopping and uh, we did see more people planning to to buy online this year than, than in the past, which again makes sense. I think people have gotten very comfortable shopping online. Now I would note because this is a national survey, different parts of the country have different regulations and restrictions in place. So, you know, on average, people are feeling a little more comfortable with online shopping this year, but in some places it's fine for them to go into the store in a safe way. So mm -hmm. it really varies, but we do, we are seeing more of a shift online. It's likely that Congress will not reach another stimulus package agreement. It, that's the way it's looking now at the time of this broadcast, although things could change. Have you all already started to survey for Thanksgiving and Christmas and the holiday season? Or do you think if there is something that is passed prior to the election, could that change and could that have an effect on what people might spend moving forward as, as we get into the, the big part of the holiday season? 
Um, so we, we have uh, already started some of our holiday surveying. Uh, we actually survey consumers October, November, and December during the holidays to kind of keep up to date on how things are changing. So we're actually coming out very shortly with our um, winter holiday expectations. Um, but the short answer to your question is, is yes, you know, a stimulus, we saw this during the early part of the pandemic, it put, you know, money, extra money in the hands of consumers who, who needed it. And, you know, another stimulus package passed could certainly, you know, have a positive impact and make people feel even, even more comfortable mm -hmm. uh, shopping and spending and gifting this year. So uh, we, we hope for good news on that front. Um, but to your point, there are still a lot of unknowns when it comes to something actually happening. And finally, as we wrap up, Catherine, uh, I guess Halloween costumes were still at the top of the list, as well as obviously candy. What will folks in your household be dressing up as? Any idea? <laughs> yes. Well, I have 15-month-old twins, and so getting oh. them to do anything is is a little difficult, but um, we are going to uh, dress them up as skeletons this year, nice and easy <laughs> oh, <how> and <laughs> <cute>. <laughs> something that can make a, quick, a cute photo for them. Well, what I'm hearing is that what might be a very, very popular costume will be uh, paying, paying tribute and honoring the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So we'll see a lot of little folks in the traditional trademark uh, robe and the white uh, collar and the glasses and hair yep. pulled back. So... Yes, we should see some of those as well as I've heard a lot of um, work from home costumes. So, oh, like sweats, of, pajamas, <laughs> sweats and pajamas. So, lots of options out there for people, and I think mm -hmm. we'll see a lot of us, you know, focus on social media and kind mm -hmm. of sharing what you're doing on those channels since you might not be able to gather in person. And I suspect also too maybe a lot of Black Panther costumes as well. So, yes. Those aren't bad choices, obviously. No, there's always some good ones out there. So Catherine, I'm looking forward to seeing them. All right. Well, send us a picture of those twins. We'd love to see that. <laughs> Catherine Cullen, the Senior Director of Industry and Consumer Insights for the National Retail Federation. Thank you so much for taking the time. As always, we look forward to this conversation. Even during this pandemic, we hope that folks can enjoy themselves on this holiday. So thank you. Thank you so much, Rose. <laughs> Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Let's back it up a bit. 1989, in a Rolling Stone interview, then 20-year-old O'Shea Jackson told the music mag, quote, we deal with reality, violence is reality. When you say something like that, it scares people. You're supposed to picture life as a bowl of cherries, but it's not, so we don't do nothing fake, close quote. The year before, O'Shea Jackson and his rap mates bust through the music scene with this. Straight out of So remember that the group N.W.A. O'Shea Jackson, also known as Ice Cube. By the way, Ice Cube's net worth now is reportedly right around one hundred and seventy million. So do what you want with that. The emergence of N.W.A. didn't leave an indelible mark on hip hop. It created a movement controversy and now decades later has its place in music history. Now, there are a lot of quality of life intersections that include hip hop and a new podcast from NPR Music takes listeners through one of those. Each episode this season, we're going to break down a different aspect of the criminal justice system. And we're going to do it by telling the stories of those who lived it, the rise, the fall, and everything in between. And every step of the way, 
Hip-hop is going to be our guide. From RICO laws and industry complicity in the case of Bobby Shmurda, to the criminalization of mixtape culture with DJ Drama. From gang profiling and parole pitfalls in Nipsey Hussle, South Central, to prison conditions and human rights violations with ISIS the Savior. Because if a riot is the language of the unheard, like Dr. King once said, then rap is the definitive soundtrack. I'm Rodney Carmichael. I'm Sydney Madden. From NPR Music, this is Louder Than a Riot. So let's get the origin story. Joining me now, Louder Than a Riot co-hosts Rodney Carmichael and Sydney Madden. Thank you both for taking the time. Thank you for having us, Rose. Thank you, Rose. I know y'all thought I was going to play the album version of Straight Outta Compton, didn't you? Uh-oh, what did you play? That was an explicit version, wasn't it? We bleeped out the uncomfortable words for some people. Okay, okay. <laughs> I was headed off to college when that came out, and uh, I had my little Walkman, and I would listen to that uh, going to track practice, and I was like, I don't need to be listening to this going to track practice. Ooh, I can see how that would amp you up for track, though. Oh, yeah, it was, it was. Uh, but let's go yeah. back a little bit. Before we get into Louder Than a Riot, I want our audience to get a little bit of insight into you all. City, let me start with you tell me the first hip-hop or rap song rather that you heard that really maybe spoke to you oh wow that's such a great question wow um hmm you know i've never been asked that question even as a music journalist that's what i do hmm. sydney i come with the questions i, I know i know <laughs> i can see um you want rodney to hit it and then you i come back to you yeah, All sure. Right. Mr. Carmichael. One, it needs to be a single song or album. Through your lens, your voice. So you, if it's an album, it's an album. Okay, I, well, Rodney, you go first. You go first. <laughs> okay, okay. I okay. want to hear what Rodney says. Um, first, first song that I can remember that really hit me was, uh, man, there's a lot of songs. There's yeah. a lot of songs. But, but one that definitely comes to mind is The Message. Mm. You know, one of the greatest hip-hop songs of all time. <laughs> Grandma's Flash and the Furious Five. I was a young boy, but um, I instantly knew that this was different than Curtis Blow's Christmas rap or, you know, Sugar Hill Gang, you know. Broken glass everywhere. People f***ing on the stage, you know they just don't care. I can't take the smell, can't take the noise. Got no money to move out, I guess I got no choice. Rats in the front it room, roaches in the back. Something about... The stuff they were talking about that immediately put me in the South Bronx in the, you know, late 70s, early 80s. And I could immediately get a sense of, you know, the kind of urban decay. You know, everything that was going on and, and that they painted in that picture, it was it was, it was something, you know, the beginning of the Reagan era, Reaganomics, not trickling down, you know, it was, it was, uh, it, it's, still, it's still a classic today. That first line that hits you, broken glass everywhere, people, they just don't care, that hits yeah. you. And you, yeah. that vision, you could see what he was rapping. Sydney, what about you? Yeah, I would say the first rap artist that ever held my attention and made me think like wow this is a superstar is notorious big and mm -hmm. so i'll say the first album as a body of work that really spoke to me was life after death because i think at that time Rap was raised to a level of fandom and superstardom and glitz and glamour, but it also had purpose. And all of all of Notorious B.I.G.'s catalog still rings so true to me today. And it's amazing that even 20, almost 30 years later, his words and his wordplay and his cadence can just hit so true still. And... I was, I'm a, I'm a 90s baby, and I was very much someone who stole my older siblings' CDs, and that was one of them that I definitely never gave back. So the origin story of Louder Than a Riot, how did all that come about? Oh, man, you know, it was uh, 20, 2017. Um, yeah, I had just gotten to NPR uh, that year, NPR Music. Uh, Sydney came 
uh, later in that same year. And I was really inspired by, um, by Combat Jacks. He did the first narrative hip hop podcast, mm -hmm. uh, which was Mogul. First season on Chris Lighty, you know, former music executive who died a really tragic death, mm -hmm. was key, managed all of the biggest acts from, from Buster Rhymes, to Tribe Called Quest to 50 Cent back in the day. And, um, you know, I was like, man, those are the kind of stories that 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 we should be telling at NPR. You know what I mean? He, he's using audio to tell these, these really um, deep uh, stories that, you know, look at cultural issues and in and, and our community, et cetera, et cetera. But they center the music. And um, so, you know, we got to brainstorming and um, we went through the whole process, you know, in, in PR, takes you through the process. We went through the Story Lab uh, workshop and developed the idea further. And, um, but yeah, we just really wanted to, to, to look at this, this idea of, of, of hip hop and mass incarceration. And, you know, over a couple of years of development, we kind of started to realize that the two were, were more intertwined than maybe we had ever really paid attention to, at least over the last 40 years. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they both start to boom in this country around the same time, um, you know, from, from the early 80s when rap becomes like a, a genre of music that's being released. It's at the same time that the war on drugs pops off and mass incarceration rates start to skyrocket through the roof in this country. Um, and both of them, obviously, you know, one is coming out of the community and one is coming down on the community, mm -hmm. um, our community. So, you know, we, we were like, yeah, let's, let's, let's tell some stories that really kind of explore and expose how this has been um, such, a, such a, a weird, complex, complicated uh, relationship over the last four years. Mm -hmm. And show how they each intertwined in different aspects to um, highlight or or bolster racial inequality and racial inequity in this country. And and one thing I love, even Ronnie, going back to your answer about the message, it's like the music was always ahead of whoever else was trying to uh, codify or catalog or report on this because the music was the message in so many ways and I think what we found in a lot of our reporting or not found but but rather um, asserted and justified is that what's happening in hip-hop is a microcosm for what's happening in Black America especially when it comes to the prison industrial complex and certain aspects of it whether it be racial profiling or or the loopholes and pitfalls of parole mm -hmm. or centuries old laws that are used to vilify art form that even though the, the laws were created eons before the art form was ever thought up and, and how that long shadow of law and racist roots that, that kind of intermingle with so many things that we deal with today are just kind of kind of underpinned in hip hop in a way that that no other genre can do. Let me ask y'all this because uh, I imagine there might be someone listening or there are critics out there to say, well, wait a minute, y'all going to tell me that you can connect the rise of hip hop with mass incarceration. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, um, you know, now, nah, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, we, we, yeah, we dropped a few episodes and people are like, really? No, he's like, no, you need to listen to the whole episode. Cause we, because we connect the dots right there, even off the top. In our first episode of the season, or of the series, rather, we do a, like, speed hyper jump through 40 years of history. And we show how things like um, gangster rap became to be such a dominant sound in the 80s or how, um, or how the war on drugs, like the war actually predated the drugs and, and there was so much um, justification for all this spending before there was ever a huge um, um, nationwide, I don't want to say pandemic, but nationwide drug problem and how a lot of times Black people and, and Black music and Black creators were, were pinned as the scapegoats for those things. And let's talk language for a moment, because I noticed right off the bat in, in Sydney, you make it very clear in every podcast. You say, look, heads up, this podcast is explicit in every way. So how free mm -hmm. and raw is the language and no beeping, huh? 
no no censor no bleep Rodney and I obviously when when we're talking to each other back and forth and we're analyzing the music or um the people who are in our stories that that we that we cover we don't swear in our back and forth we don't curse but we wanted it to really feel like hip-hop and and it's funny because we're talking about huge systemic issues and systemic ills and and those can elicit very explicit responses, very visceral responses from people. And we didn't want to censor them in their truth. And and we didn't want to um, dull down or dilute their sense of sense of ecstasy, urgency, anger, anything like that. So nah, this is raw and real because hip hop is raw and real and we're delivering it to you. Yeah. Yeah, And just to go back to your early question, you know, Hip hop, hip hop is a microcosm of of the black community, um, you know, black and brown communities specifically. So, whatever's happening, you know, to to black America in this country is, has always been reflected in the music. Mm-hmm. That's going before hip hop, right? Mm-hmm. That, that's, that's soul music. That's that's blues. That's that's jazz. And so, you know, when 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 these forces racial inequality and, and 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 all the systemic forces that you know create this prison industrial complex are coming down and cracking down on the black community it means that it's 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 it's, it's, it's coming down and cracking down on on hip-hop you mm-hmm. know and so what we wanted to do in terms of you know why this connection is be able to explore you know this bigger you know social issue and 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 political issue by using the soundtrack of America, which is, you know, hip hop is the most consumed genre in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, America is the, you know, incarcerates more people than, than any other nation in the world. And hip hop has been, you know, as Sydney said before, hip hop has been, has been critiquing and, and commenting and rapping and raging about this stuff since the beginning, since, since the message in 1982, which is the same year that Ronald Reagan, you know, announced his, his war on drugs, you know, and we just started to, as we started to line these events in history up between the music and what is going on and what it's saying and what it's reflecting, like NWA, for instance, um, and what kind of policy was being created and enacted on hoods across America at the same time, we just realized it's, it's, it's not a coincidence. You know, it's, it's more consequence, if anything. And so that's the connection that, that we're really drawing out. If you're just joining us, I'm joined by Rodney Carmichael and Sydney Madden, and they are the co-hosts of NPR Music's new podcast, Louder Than a Riot. And we're talking about what they're focusing on, which is the interconnected rise of hip hop and mass incarceration. When we come back, we'll pick up the conversation. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Let's get back to our conversation now with Rodney Carmichael and Sidney Matten, co-hosts of NPR's music new podcast, Louder Than a Riot. And what they're doing, they're looking at the intersection of the rise of hip-hop and mass incarceration. Are you two the main uh, curators of the episodes in terms of story angles and, and how the episodes flow? You all have the final say over that? Uh, we got a team. Mm-hmm. We got a we got a we got a team of uh, of of producers and 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 editors, uh, editors, and exactly. research assistants. Yeah. And so yeah. we all, you know, we all worked on this over the last couple of years, and we thought about uh, the stories that we wanted to tell. You know, a, 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 um, an issue like this, there there are unfortunately way too many stories that could be told, and so it was about boiling down the ones that we felt like could help us plot this timeline. Um, you know, like Sydney said, the first episode, we kind of look at the first uh, three decades or so. And then once we get into our narrative stretch, uh, our narrative episode, starting with episode two, which is the beginning of uh, former No Limit artist Mac, mm-hmm. um, we, that's the late 90s. And so each each uh, story we tell from there will will you know continue from from the late 90s on to to today um 
And yeah, we, we selected episodes that are, are stories that, that we just felt like would, you know, each, each storyline kind of highlights a different aspect of mm-hmm. the criminal justice system and how it impacts, you know, uh, disproportionately impacts our community. With Mac's story, we get into lyrics on trial mm-hmm. and how that's a growing phenomenon around the country that has really kind of is underreported. But we talked to a couple of experts and, you know, we weave that into the telling of Mac's story and talk about how he was one of the early cases where the bulk of the evidence that the prosecutors had on him was the image he portrayed in his music. Mm-hmm. You know, there was there was no other evidence that showed he committed these crimes. And since then, the witnesses have re, uh, uh, several witnesses have recanted their testimony. Um, and, you know, he's been in, in prison for 20 years now. Uh, for what a lot of people feel is a wrongful conviction. Um, We have other storylines where, you know, we look at the power of the prosecutor and plea deals and the fact that 97% of of criminal cases end in in plea deals in this country and don't go to trial Mm -hmm. and and how that really impacts people who oftentimes can't afford to have the high-powered lawyers and whatnot. Um, And, you know, that that really pertains a lot to, to Bobby Schmurter's um, story, which we'll be telling a little bit later in the season. I do want to say I, I agree with uh, the gentleman you interviewed. Can't remember his name. His name escapes me, but he was talking about Mac Phipps, and he said when you hear him for the first time, it's like he puts you in the southern mode of Nas. And I was like, that's it. Mm. That's what he reminded me of. Yeah, yeah. He yeah. He, he was he was tough. he was tough. I mean, especially if you listen at his pre No Limit stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Psycho Ward. Yeah. He definitely had he definitely had that level of lyricism going on, you know. And we draw out a lot of um like Rodney said, we do put the music first in a way. So we we always use music and the culture as our guide. So even in the Mac story in which is a three part story, um, a three part arc, there's also little vignettes about other indie rap labels that were targeted by law enforcement. There's kind of sonic detours about the the history of the Black American outlaw and how and how that image and that archetype and that stereotype has been solidified in song even before hip hop. There's a, a nice breakdown from uh, Charlie Braxton about the history of bounce. Mm-hmm. If you go, if you look at uh, other stories we explore this season, we're not just talking about okay, so this is the artist story and this is the aspect of um, of the criminal justice system that disproportionately affects Black America. It's not just like a one-to-one comparison. We take you on a lot of diversions to show you the whole tapestry of how it all fits together and the through line through each of these episodes. Because real talk, like lyrics on trial, that could have been a theme of a lot of the cases that we mm-hmm. explore or or power the prosecutor and overuse of RICO laws to, um, to police Black neighborhoods. That could have been a running theme of a lot of episodes, but we just use um, certain cases to bolster points, but then show you the, the the breadcrumbs that connect all the stories through the decades, through the eras, through the regions, to give you the full scope of how widespread the problem can be. And speaking of music, how much clearance in terms of copyrights and fair use and all that? And I know that because of, in the context that it's being used, so you all don't have any problems with that if you... You play an artist song, you don't have to worry about being hauled into court or NPR music being hauled into court. Oh, man, we got the lawyers all on top of this stuff. They, they, <laughs> right, they, 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 they on they, us. They give us the fair use breakdown on early, exactly how early. many seconds of a song <laughs> right. we can use before we in trouble territory. Yes. So, uh, And how much we need to talk about the song and analyze the song for it to qualify as fair use before <laughs> we play and after we play. No, they on us. They on us. Quit with it. Let me ask you all this. In the 21st century, albeit the same life issues that Grandmaster Flash talked about uh, in the message to Chuck D and Public Enemy to Tip, T.I., for those who don't know, we call him Tip, trap music to Kendrick Lamar. Has rap drifted a little bit from its origins of storytelling, which was about reality? And you know, Now we hear people say, oh, he or she is a studio rapper or he or she is not really reflecting a real reality it's sort of manufactured or is that a fair assessment you think i mean there's definitely plenty of room for criticism right i mean you know when 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 you know when, when we were young when i was young 
and 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 being a critic or you know uh somebody who covered music was the furthest thing from my mind we we would sit around and and, and bump the latest whatever cd and 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 critique it amongst ourselves in and out. Like hip hop as an as a listening audience is probably the most critical, critically engaged audience that there is in, in music yep. and always has been. And the music has definitely evolved. Um, I do think, however, that um, the level the level of of of, of realness and use a hip hop term is 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 still intact. I mean, just look at you know we here in Atlanta. Look at trap. Look at trap music. You know, mm -hmm. a, a music that that um shows you the underbelly of atlanta you know in a way that that um contradicts a lot of the the you know the rose-colored lenses that we tend as black folks tend to look at this city through you know i mean you know that does not you know in any way uh minimize or negate you know the the history and the legacy of the civil rights movement and the amount of opportunity that it brought to atlanta um and and the, the black mecca you know identity that's so strong down here that maurice hobson talks and writes about so well mm -hmm. um but the truth is there's a there's always been this forgotten side of atlanta this economically deprived side of atlanta and when you listen to 21 savage yeah. you hear that loud and clear mm -hmm. you know what i mean i mean when you listen to ti in his heyday coming out of bankhead you heard that loud and clear so, um, you know, now does everybody rely a little too much on the same producers or the same sound? Sure, yeah, we can always have that debate and, and that discussion. That's in the name of making making the music better. And, and like I said, we were such a critical listener in, in hip hop, but I think that that degree of realness is still there. It just might not always be to to your taste, especially as you as you as you kind of age out of whatever the demographic is that hip hop is is targeting at that time. You calling me old, Rodney? I'm Ooh. not. I'm not. Call me we, old, we brother. about the same age. So but you call me old, man. Because you know <laughs> what? Back up from the mic, and y'all can. <laughs> Sydney said, "I'm a '90s hip hop." Right. So mm -hmm. now the '90s was cool, but I'm be honest with you. Some of this stuff after 2000, for me, <laughs> for me, I'm like, "What y'all doing?" Well, I think that's when it really like. That's when a lot of hip hop became so much more like a commercial juggernaut that there were mm -hmm. enough artists and enough people around the artists to to really move a sound away from, let's say, like its reality roots that it came from. But but I would agree with Rodney. There's definitely uh, differing degrees of reality that we can tap into now. I'm thinking of y'all talking about Atlanta. I'm thinking of like the New York drill movement now and people like people like Pop Smoke or even someone who's coming up who I'm really interested in, um, Chef G, who is still giving you exactly what he's seeing out his window from his corner and, and who's, who's working with his own producers, who's not trying to do a copy and paste sound of, of trying to sound like somebody else in, in another city. Um, and I think so much of hip hop is still, I mean, beauty beauty pageant or blood sport, it's rooted in authenticity. And I would say the people who stand the test of time and who can, you know, and in the, in the, who can rise to the top and, and, and be able to outlive certain like mini eras or mini renaissances of people finding the same sound or, or cashing in on a TikTok hit or, or being able to jump up the charts because of um, a, f a four second, a four second loop, and a, and a cosign from some from someone who they grew up on. Mm -hmm. I think there's going to be a lot of rappers who still stand that test of time, and because their their words mean something when you hear them. There's 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 earnestness and gumption and and honesty behind those words, and even even if it's not like even if it's not the archetype sound that came from the 80s or 90s I'm thinking someone like like a Rico Nasty who's straight out the DMV and she was never apologetic about her her punk influences and how that how that intertwines and influences her rap sound I think no matter what genres and where the influences pull from if your music is rooted in earnest honesty and conviction like it's gonna it's gonna live and it's gonna connect with the people who it needs to and I think the hip-hop audience is 
more malleable and and very very opinionated obviously but Mm -hmm. I think because hip-hop has become the most consumed most streamed most toured genre you know back when we were time in the time of touring uh the hip-hop audience has has grown so much so the so there is no one type of hip-hop listener anymore so I think that's why we have so many divergent sounds that still can flourish as we wrap up and we've been talking about rap music you know narrated by storytellers and with this podcast, you all are the storytellers, although you're not you're not coming across 16 bars. But and I know y'all are not trying to predict or even wish what the listener would get out of this. But what's the feedback been like so far? The feedback has been has been has been great. You know, mm-hmm. um, from people who've who've listened, I think uh, it's it's the kind of feedback we hope for. You know, we 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 hope we can start a a cultural conversation with this. Mm-hmm. You know. And it's, it's such a, um, you know, I think in terms of what's going on this year, everybody realizes how timely and timeless this topic is. You know, it could have been released any, in any year mm-hmm. in the last, you know, yeah. 30, 40 years, and it would have been timely. But, you know, especially right now, um, we, we, we see and understand how important this is. You know, this is the same same time when people are, you know, in the, in the streets protesting and, 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 and you know, crying out to defund the police or talking about, you know, doing away with, with mass incarceration or, or prisons altogether. Um, and the, the, the racism that we see that's that, that, you know, continues to lead to so many deaths in our community at the hands of police, you know, that, that, that sits at the center of, of what this, uh, what this project is about, you know, but ultimately it's also about the storytelling and it's mm-hmm. about um, holding wrap up, and hip hop up in a way where, you know, it's not just about the trauma and the tragedy, but it's also about the way that it celebrates, um, you know, our lives and, and, and these untold stories and these marginalized voices, you know what I mean? Um, and so, you know, I, I, I hope that that's what people are getting from, from, from the, uh, from the podcast. What about yeah. you, Sydney? Uh, absolutely. I think, I've had a lot of people tell us that they've never listened to a po- they've never listened to a podcast like this before, or they've never listened to a podcast. Period, because I think um, outside of a few outliers, like shows like the the inaugural season of Mogul, which totally set the blueprint for narrative hip hop podcasts, there's not a lot of there's not a lot of spaces for us to tell these stories with the depth and breadth that we really want to. And like, when sometimes when those spaces are afforded to us, they're not like really for us, right? They're for communicating our stories and our message to like an outside audience. So a lot of the, a lot of the points of view get censored. A lot of things get chopped up to be in quick little sound bites. And it's like, nah, we're giving you the full scope in 40 minutes plus so you got to hold on to this story you got to hang on to it and I really um I would definitely underscore what Rodney said about starting a cultural conversation because when you have those things when you when, when you boil down a lot of these themes into into conversational and digestible topics for people it doesn't become some big bad boogeyman that like you just want to look away from. It doesn't become mass incarceration, which sounds, which already sounds just so huge and sprawling and intimidating, right? It's like, no, when when if you look up on Genius, how many how many rappers talking about Rico laws? Like, yeah, this is how Rico laws actually affect black neighborhoods. You know, when 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 we talk about these things, they're not just sound bites, like. For the culture is not just a buzzword, you know, like we're, we're trying to, we're trying to regard and like Rodney said, uphold the culture in its, in its fullest form and, and give it its due and tell these stories with nuance and consideration and dignity in a way that I think a lot of people have already told us has never been done before and, and that they're enjoying it and they're learning a lot and they're starting to talk about it more in their circles. And finally, Louder Than a Riot, the name, inform our listeners. We wanted to have a name that, that, that spoke to the legacy of hip hop, you know, speaking truth to power, but also spoke to this, this moment that we're in right now. And um, as Dr. King said, you know, 
a riot is the language, the language of the of the unheard. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's like, well, then if that's the case, rap is the definitive soundtrack of that, you know, because rap has always represented the unheard, you know, in society. And and uh, so it felt it felt like the perfect the perfect the perfect name to to um to brand the show. All right. The podcast from NPR Music takes listeners through the intersection of hip-hop and mass incarceration, co-hosted by Rodney Carmichael and Sydney Madden. And so check it out wherever. Now it's like a hip-hop DJ. Check it out. You guys say check it out wherever. Yeah. You are a hip-hop DJ. Right? Wherever you get your podcast, Rodney, <laughs> Sydney, enjoyed the conversation. Thank y'all so much. I ain't even ask y'all about the GOAT the greatest of all time, because that conversation just gets a little worn for me. You oh, know? that's that's a whole other podcast. Yeah, it just, who, was your, who was your goat pick? Man, you know? let me say something. My top five, I've had this spirited debate for some years now, but my top five includes Nas, in no particular order, uh, Tupac, Nas, Chuck D, MC Light, and I know folks going, and KRS-One. I like a storyteller. Yeah. Now there's some yeah. other folks, and Biggie, you know, Biggie tells a story too. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. Like you said, that'd have been a whole nother. Yeah. I know, get us in trouble. Well, I appreciate it, y'all. Best of luck to both Thank of you. Thank you so much. I love the podcast. I really do. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.